All right, friends, we're going to get started this evening. Welcome. You are the few, you are the proud. I mean, there's the Marines and the nurse, people who have endured the session five of summer seminar. At least we know who the real Christians are. So, you know, even I came on my vacation. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> Whoops. Well, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Um, yes, that was it. All right. Um, yeah, this is so. This is um, this is the last one. Like we'll recover, finish our grand uh, um, coverage of the entire Bible. Like we'll finish up the New Testament today and then the last one will be about like now what do we do with this like how does this affect the way we read the word and live in it um but tonight's is really interesting to me because well there's there's kind of two hooks in it that make it um pretty important one this is like this is where we enter the story so that's kind of a big deal almost everything we've been talking about so far has been you know two thousand years in the past and and still we're going to pick up there but we're going to bring it all the way into the present so it's um if you're waiting for the moment when like in this, in this act, you know, six-act play. If you're waiting on your moment, this is it. This is where you get to participate in the story. But it's also interesting to me because um, I did something on vacation that I probably shouldn't have done, which is I listened to um, uh, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, which a lot of people have been listening to. Apparently in our church, we're going to have to have a support group, I think. Um, <laughs> Which is about, you know, Mark Driscoll, this church in Seattle that, like, you know, became a mega church and peaked and then, like, fell apart almost overnight because of all sorts of unhealthy abuses. So, like, I was listening to that podcast and I was reading a book called Jesus and John Wayne, which is uh, also about basically how, how American evangelicalism is bankrupt. So, <laughs> so... Uh, I have some complicated feelings about uh, the church as we as we come to the session on the story of the church. Um, so actually, I th- but I think it's good because uh, actually what we're going to talk about tonight is like what the church should be, right? With the vision of the church, like this is our part of the story and here's the vision of what God has created us to be. And we're going to see by our own experience, um, anecdotally and out there that, that we fall pretty far sh- short of that vision. And yet, this is still who we are by the grace of God, right? Like there's some part of this, everything we're about to say tonight is true about the church. And yet, <clears throat> interestingly, like Old Testament Israel, we have a hard time leaning into this calling. So anyway, those are my like, this is kind of what's spinning around in my head tonight (laughs) it's like this is great this is where we come into the story and also like oh this is where we come into the story you know what i mean so anyway let me pray for us and then we will we will dive in father we're thankful for um this time this night now we do pray for anyone who's in the path of the storm that's coming through our area or to the west of us um that you would protect them, you would watch over them and pray um, that there would be um, no damages or, or no, um, uh, no losses, especially of, of human life. I pray you would protect us. Uh, thank you that you are the God who, is, um, uh, who has been with us throughout all the ages, who has written a beautiful story of your kingdom, and thank you for the opportunity to explore it together. I pray as we talk tonight about what it means to be your church, that you would help us and that you would especially help us to find our place in this story, to figure out what this looks like in our life, to participate uh, in your kingdom. And so, as always, we know we are dependent upon you, and so we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, session five, Redemption Continued, which is the mission of the church. As always, let me give you a, a recap, which is, you know, by now, everything's kind of coming into view of what we've been talking through, this whole thing. And remember, our whole point of studying the drama of Scripture is to figure out what is the overarching grand story of the Bible. And so that we can make sense of it. Hey, guys. Um, and so we can figure out, like, 
how this story can become the center of our lives. And so the way uh, my, my recaps are getting shorter and shorter because I can't possibly sum up everything we talked about. But it's also narrowing down in like, okay, how do we, how do we summarize the Bible in, in just a few sentences or so? So this is my attempt so far of what we've learned. The grand story of the Bible is the story of the coming of the kingdom of God so that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, like Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. And so as we situate ourselves, that's it. God is bringing, God is a king, and he's bringing a kingdom to earth, and he administrates that kingdom through covenants, that is special relationships with people through whom he works out his plans in history. So that's starting to give us like a big picture orientation, right? God is a great king over everything who is bringing his kingdom to earth through a people living under his reign, his gracious reign, through a people who are in covenant with him. And we talked about how the story of this kingdom takes place in six acts. Uh, Act one is about God establishing his kingdom. That makes sense. If God is the great king and he's bringing a kingdom to earth, first thing he's got to do is create the kingdom. And so he creates the two realms of the kingdom, which is heaven and earth. And then he fills those realms with all sorts of wonderful uh, things, (laughs) creatures and moon and stars and sun and everything else. And the greatest thing he creates uh, at the end of this act is human beings uh, to rule over the realm of earth, <laughs> not the realm of heaven, but the, to rule over the realm of earth on his behalf, to steward it, to take care mm-hmm. of it. And so that's what he does in the beginning. He creates the world, he establishes his kingdom, but immediately we see Act 2, which is the fall, rebellion in the kingdom, and particularly human rebellion. So the people God created to rule over his beautiful creation, to tend it and to care it for him, um, we turned against him. And brought in what we've been talking a lot about, the fundamental nature of sin is human autonomy, right? I don't, want, I don't want God, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Like, I want to be the one who calls the shots and says what's right and what's wrong and what I can and can't do. But immediately, because God is gracious, Act 3 begins, which is he immediately initiates a plan of redemption. So redemption is initiated, and that's the whole story of Israel. Um, we talked about that two times ago. That uh, has two scenes, a people for the king that uh, God chooses Israel, and he sets his heart upon these particular people, and he rescues them uh, out of slavery in Egypt. And then scene two, it's a land for his people. He gives Israel a home. But remember, the whole point of the giving them a home and making them his special people is so that they could be a blessing to the nations, right, to the whole world. And then you come to the, the interlude between uh, in the middle of our play. Uh, it's a kingdom story waiting for an ending because, what, as you know what happens, um, Israel fails in that calling to be God's special people to bless the nations. They, they're ending up in exile by the end of the Old Testament. And so there's this intertestamental period, 400 years of wondering what's going to happen, right? What, what happened to God's promises? What's happening to God's story? And finally, those 400 years of silence is broken by Act 4, the climax. Redemption is accomplished. He initiated it with the story of Israel. He accomplishes it in the story of Jesus. He is the coming of the king. The true king has come down uh, into the realm of earth to bring his kingdom uh, to do through himself, take on Israel's calling upon himself uh, to bring actual blessings to the whole world through his life, death, and resurrection to undo the curse um, that is spoiling all of God's creation. Now, tonight, we're going to talk about Acts 5 and 6. So, redemption has been accomplished by Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about redemption continue. This is the story of the church. So, now, we're spreading the news of the king. Uh, and we see scene one, that's from Jerusalem to Rome. And then scene two is in, into all the world. And then, finally, we'll look ahead at this, the act that's still to come, Acts 6, where redemption will be completed. The return of the king, when everything will be when his kingdom will finally be here in its complete fullness. All right, that's the big picture. Uh, will somebody read, Kayla, would you read that narrative sum? This is the way that, you know, here's the like the act one through six way of laying it out. Here's a, here's a, a narrative way uh, that they lay out the story so far. When his good creation was followed by human rebellion, God immediately set out on a salvage mission. He had created it, thus belonged to him by right. Now he would redeem it, buy it back from him for himself, so that it might be restored to what he had always intended it to be. The Old Testament tells of God's moving among the people of Israel to make progress toward this goal. Of his first acts of redemption and restoration, and of his repeated promises that one day 
He will complete for the whole of creation what has begun within the, this one small nation. In God's purpose, at last, the very heavens and earth themselves are to be renewed and restored. In Jesus Christ, that renewal and restoration is revealed in its final shape as the kingdom of God. Phil Samuel L. There'd be a few more choice words of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I always have to remember this is being recorded as I uh, as I filter through what I was about to say. Ask me about it later. It's funny. Um, yes. So does that make sense? Any questions? Is sort of like the way this is laid out of like. Do you think? Do you feel like is this helpful to kind of access? All right, this this is about a kingdom. I know it's we're we're Americans, we live in a democracy. This is foreign concept for us, but in the world it was created in, it was not. You know, so there's a kingdom. God is the king. He's bringing it. Uh, he started it with Israel, but it didn't quite get there. And then Jesus comes on and he takes on the story, the mission of Israel, and he actually accomplishes it through his life, death, and resurrection. And now. Uh, there's, we're sort of like Israel part two. <laughs> now we're the people of God through whom he wants to bless the whole, the whole world to continue his redemption to spread it out into all the earth. Does that make sense? Any questions, comments before we dive into Act 5? Good. All right. Act 5, redemption continued. This is the mission of the church. And the way it's laid out, uh, they talk about it in the book. Scene 1 is from, Jeru- from Jerusalem to Rome. And so that's the book of Acts that's in our Bible. Uh, that's the first, um, uh, first three decades after Jesus' resurrection as the gospel works its way out of, out of Jerusalem and then coming out uh, eventually encompassing the entire Mediterranean world. Um, or on the way there and within the book of Acts. And then scene two is in all the world, which is uh, the rest of history <laughs> right now. Like that's, that's where we are right now, Act 5, scene two. Now the question is you come to this part, um, and remember this was a part of the surprises in Act 4 when, when, when Jesus brought the kingdom. Remember he tells all these parables about the kingdom because people, it's, it's not what they expected. They expected the kingdom to come all at once, and it didn't. It's, it's mixed. It's, it's an already and a not yet. And so that's the kind of, that's still the question as we come to the book of Acts, which is if the coming of the kingdom is not immediate, then what? Like, what happens? What should we expect? What should the followers of Jesus, uh, how should the followers of Jesus live in the meantime? What should they and we do? It's really interesting, like, if, if you read Acts 1, verse 6, um, this is right before Jesus ascends into heaven. And his apostles, his disciples who have been with him through this whole thing, they come to him and they say, all right, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> so even they are still wanting something like immediate right now with a, ne- with a particular nation of Israel. That's, that's the question because Jesus didn't bring a kingdom the way everybody thought he did. And so Acts is so important because it helps us see what actually happened and how we understand the nature of the kingdom of God then and now. So that's why the book of Acts is such a, uh, such a gift to us. Luke is actually the only one of the four gospel writers who writes the next chapter. Right? He carries the story of Jesus past his death and resurrection. Uh, the book of Acts is actually the second volume of Luke's gospel. It's telling the story of the coming of God's kingdom during the three decades following Jesus' resurrection. So the way we, um, biblical scholars have talked about it is like uh, Luke, his first volume is what Jesus began to do and to teach. It's what he says in Acts 1, verse 1. But in Acts is what Jesus continues to do and to teach from his ascended throne, like through, uh, through the instrument of the church. So this second part of the gospel story is about the continuing mission of the exalted Christ, by the agency of his spirit to give salvation to the church and through the church to the whole world. That kind of gives us our paradigm, right? That gives us our, our big picture outline of, of what's happening in Acts and now what's happening throughout the entire Act 5 of, of the story of the gospel. It's the continuing mission of the exalted Christ by his spirit through the church. That's what's happening in the kingdom, even right now. The, um, the continuing mission of the exalted Christ by his spirit through the church. That's the plan. So that's what we're going to look at briefly, those three things. The exalted Christ by his spirit 
through the church, which we're going to talk about. Why did Jesus do it that way? Why did he use a messy, weak, struggling church to work out his kingdom? I think that's actually part of the plan, so we're going to talk about that. First of all, the exalted Christ. What, certainly what we have to account for in this section in the book of Acts is like, well, where is Jesus now? Uh, if he died and rose again and he's alive, where is he? Well, uh, the first thing that happens in the book of Acts is that Jesus ascends into heaven. And the way to think about this is that Jesus' ascension is his coronation day. I can't say coronation day without thinking about the movie Frozen. It's coronation day. Yes. Sorry if you don't have kids and you haven't seen that, but it's wonderful. Uh, yes, that's right. But it's, that, that's what the ascension is. Jesus' coronation day, the installation of the rightful king to the right hand of God, which makes sense. If this is the story of the kingdom, what happens now is Jesus takes his place on the throne of heaven and earth uh, as, as, as the rightful king. Uh, would someone read that little bullet point under that first point? Do you catch the significance of that? Like, most of his disciples probably thought after he rose from the dead that he was going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, right? That that, that was going to be the place of his kingship, and then he was going to finally exalt Israel to its rightful place in the world, and he was going to uh, subdue all of Israel's enemies right away. So it's very significant that Jesus doesn't do that. He continues to shock and surprise everybody by not doing what they expect him to do. And he instead ascends to a much, much higher throne, right? All the way at the right hand of God himself. Not over just one nation, but over all nations, over all creation. I guess it's going to be a significant theme throughout this entire act, which is everything's bigger. It's like Texas, right? <laughs> Everything in the gospel is bigger than everybody thought. They wanted to narrow it down to, to, and to make it small. And so do we sometimes, actually. And we're, we're going to talk about that in our questions. But, yeah, Jesus is not content to just this one nation, the whole point, remember the whole story was one, one people unto all the nations. And so he takes up his throne. He takes a seat at the right hand of God above everything. And therefore that means uh, this constant phrase in the New Testament, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You probably, you know, I've seen, that's been on my, it makes me think of like my, my grandma had it like on some wall art uh, in her in her house that said Jesus is Lord. Like we're so accustomed to what that meant, but it, it meant something very specific in the first century. It was a it was a title of supreme authority. It means Jesus is given the name that is above every name. That's what Philippians two talks about, right? So let's talk about let's try to understand why this is so significant. Would somebody read that next bullet point? This I'm gonna make you guys read so you don't have to listen to me drone on so long. <laughs> can understand why right if jesus is lord then caesar's not lord and neither is anyone else by the way Uh, it's it's an exclusive claim and and particularly the romans took that as a threat to their empire even though jesus said uh, clearly that his kingdom is not of this world has nothing to do uh, necessarily with the empires of the world but you know when you, got, when you hear about this like group of people that are meeting in this house and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, 
that's a threat. That's a threat to Caesar. That's a threat to the Roman Empire. So you, you got this foreshadowing, this foreboding of this collision course, this suffering that's going to happen to the early church because they refuse to say anyone else is Lord. Only Jesus is Lord because of his life, death, resurrection, and now ascension. There's no one higher than him. There's no throne higher than where Jesus sits. So what's he doing up there, uh, sitting at the right hand of God? Well, again, the scriptures repeatedly say he sits at, right, at God's right hand until all his enemies become his footstool. And that sounds like, whoa, like, <laughs> that's pretty intense, right? Uh, but it's, it's repeated over and over again. I don't know if you know this, but you know what the most quoted Old Testament verse and chapter in the New Testament is? Psalm 110, verse 1, which is, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Is the most quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Peter says it in Acts chapter 2. But we got to understand what that means because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So I'll read this one. This, defines, this verse defines the mission of the exalted Christ, to subdue his enemies. And it seems that God's kingdom is to come by violent military power over Israel's political enemies. Yet, this is not what happens, either before or after Pentecost. Jesus uses his authority in a very different way. Subjugation will not come about by military force, but by the loving power of the gospel. To subdue his enemies means to give them salvation that he has accomplished. See, God, I mean, God completely redefines power and authority in this act of the play, right? It's all about how am I going to subdue you? I'm going to subdue you with my love. And everybody in this room that's a Christian has been conquered by the love of Jesus. We've been subdued uh, by a love that we can't even possibly understand fully or describe. Um, it is important to say, one day, as Philippians talks about, every knee's going to bow to King Jesus, right? But in this act, in this phase, it is by the willing, by the free offer of the gospel, come and bow the knee to Jesus. Um, in the next act, in Acts, in Acts 6, whether you're willing or not, he will bow the knee to King Jesus. And so there is this aspect, like, that's coming. But in this age, like, he doesn't do it by, by the way our militaristic power forces think of it or the way they thought of it. Um, it's through the free offer and the preaching of the gospel to all the nations. Come bow the knee to King Jesus who has conquered your greatest enemies. All right, so that's, that's the first part of the game plan. The exalted Christ, he's up in the highest place, he's Lord, and he's up there until all his, in, all his enemies are made his footstool right now that is offered through the free offer of the gospel. Secondly, by his spirit. Again, these are, like everything we've done, are massive topics that we're like, you know, skimming over in a very big picture sense so we can understand the big picture of the story. But the spirit uh, is the next key part that we see in the book of Acts, which uh, the spirit's been active throughout the entire story, but now like the spirit takes center stage. And so the, the very same spirit that was poured out on Jesus that was equipping him for his task. Remember that? That was his baptism. Um, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, it talks about how heaven was opened up and people saw the spirit coming down like a, like a bird upon mm -hmm. Jesus. It was, that was God giving the spirit to Jesus to, to equip him to, to do his task on earth. And now that very same spirit is poured out on the church for the same reason, to equip us for our mission, to do our task. That's what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. Um, that's the, like, there's lots and lots and lots of things we could say about the Holy Spirit and what that means. And we all have probably different experiences and backgrounds with that. I was raised charismatic, so um, Pentecostal, so I know everything about I'm just kidding. Um, but the very main point, like if you boil it down, the main point of the Spirit is to equip us, the church, for the task of spreading the kingdom of God. Um, and the symbolism of when this happens, which is on the Feast of Pentecost, is very significant. And so we won't get too deep into the woods here, but the, the Feast of Pentecost has been around since the Old Testament. And originally, it was, it was a feast, it was a time for Israel to bring the first fruits of the harvest. It was like Thanksgiving. It's like uh, you bring the first fruits of the harvest in anticipation of the whole crop that would be gathered in. You see this in Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 16. And God chooses that day of all days to give the Spirit, to pour out the Spirit upon the church. 
which is because the Spirit is the first fruits of the coming of the kingdom of God. Right, the Spirit is God's presence. It is God himself. And so what, what more does the kingdom of God mean but eventually the entire presence of God on earth? And so like the Feast of Pentecost was the first fruits, like, like here's a little bit of cabbage <laughs> in, in light of all the cabbage we hope to come. So now this is a little bit of God, right? The, the Spirit poured out upon us in anticipation of the full presence of God one day on earth um, as it is in heaven. And you got all these other symbolism just going on, all this crazy stuff happening in Acts chapter 2. There's wind, uh, which uh, the whole point is like to show all these things have connections back to the Old Testament story. The wind is the power of God to bring new life, like in Ezekiel, where the dry bones are like these old, crusty, dead, dry bones, and then this wind comes and makes them alive. So now that's what the Spirit is for us. Uh, There's fire (laughs) dancing on people's heads, which is kind of crazy. But obviously fire has deep, Symbolism in the Old Testament as, as the presence of God. Remember the pal- pillar of fire by day or the cloud by day, the, pa- the fire by night is a symbol of God's very presence to bring the life of the kingdom. And then significantly, God, they, everyone speaks in tongues, which means people who didn't know other languages started speaking other languages. And so this is important. They didn't start speaking gibberish or like heavenly. It was like, you don't know how to speak uh, Spanish and now you are or you didn't know how to speak Swahili and now you can Like that's, that's what's happening with the tongues which is really important because the gospel is no longer confined again this whole thing of this is exploding out no longer confined to the Jewish nation and to the Hebrew language God's rule begins to work outward from Israel to the nations just as Jesus has promised it so imagine like you're uh, the Feast of Pentecost was also strategic because lots of people would be in the city. Lots of foreigners would be in the city to come in for this, for this festival. And now, I mean, imagine you're, I don't know, you're um, not from there and you speak a different language and you come by and all of a sudden somebody's proclaiming Jesus as Lord in your language. And you're like, whoa, what is going on here? All right, this is, again, this is a foretaste of what, what the Spirit has come to do to take this to the whole nations. And so interestingly, uh, and then Peter gets up and explains it and says, hey, what's going on here is the last days that Joel talked about, it's arrived. And the spirit of God is here. Um, the kingdom is here. It's been ushered in by Jesus. Now, what I find really fascinating, um, but also consistent with the story overall, the very first thing the spirit does is forms a community of people, forms the first church. That's at the end of Acts chapter 2. So the Spirit's first work is to form a community, to share in the salvation of the kingdom, and to be a channel of that salvation to others. See what's happening? Like this is Israel 2.0. This is the new Israel, the church, but not just one nation, a church of all nations uh, for the purpose of reaching all nations. And significantly, it is a community of forgiveness. Um, in, In Peter's first sermon, people were like, okay, maybe we believe you that that Jesus is the Christ and that we crucified him. Now what do we do? And, and Peter says, well, you need to do two things. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sins, your idolatry. You need to orient your whole life to Christ and his coming kingdom. And secondly, you need to be baptized. Every time scripture talks about baptism, that means you're being added to the community. You're being uh, induced. Uh, this is your induction into the, the, the church, the people of God. Um, so you now have received the gift of the kingdom. That's the Holy Spirit. And within this community, the Holy Spirit brings the blessing of forgiveness. So it's a community of forgiveness, and the Spirit is also creating a community of witness. This newly formed community of the early church is attractive to outsiders. The life of the believing community radiates the, life, the light of the kingdom and thus draws people from darkness. So a significant point of what the spirit is doing by creating this community i I love this last somebody read that last quote on the bottom of part uh page two the apostles can proclaim the gospel to any who will listen but it's through observing the life of the christian community that many people are convinced of its truth Mm -hmm. the apostolic witness depends on a community that verifies the truth of the gospel with its winsome life I love that. 
like what these apostles are proclaiming. Like, okay, that's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to hear Peter preach or, or John preach or Paul later. It's another thing to see it lived out in an actual people, right? In a community, um, a spirit-filled community called the church that verifies the truth of what we're saying, right? Your sins can be forgiven. How do I know that? Because I see these people who actually have a little bit of freedom from guilt, or from shame. Not fully, but truly, right? Um, yeah, you, you see what I'm saying? This, this verifies the truth of the gospel by looking at the community itself. And then lastly, uh, it is the ministry of the uh, exalted Christ by the power of the Spirit through the instrument of the church. And this is where we start to make those distinct connections between Israel's mission of old and our mission as the church today. So I'll read this long one. God formed Israel to be a light to the nations, but the Israelites failed to live up to their calling, so God sent them into exile. Nevertheless, he promised to gather his people again one day, pouring out his spirit on them so they might at last fulfill their calling. The prophets looked forward to the day when Israel would be regathered. Now in Jesus, the regathering has begun. He has appointed 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes of Israel to be the foundation of his kingdom, the new nation of God's people. At Pentecost, in response to Peter's preaching and the power of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people are added to that foundation. The remainder of the book of Acts tells the story of how this new community of believers continues Jesus' mission of gathering the lost from within Israel and then moves beyond old ethnic and cultural barriers to gather Samaritans and Gentiles into the kingdom. You see the beginnings of it right there, right? Finally, it's happening. There's a people that are unto being a blessing to the nations and those around them. Um, we, uh, a way um, to sort of summarize the entire book of Acts is, uh, is kind of what Jesus talks about. Where Right in Acts uh, chapter 1, he says, Hey, I'm going to ascend, but stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you. And once you receive my Spirit... Then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so you need to imagine, like it's starting in this central small place, and it starts to move out to Judea and Samaria, and then it starts to move out to Rome and to the ends of the earth. And that's, that's the, sort of the outline the book of Acts takes. So the first thing is the Spirit empowers the church's witness in Jerusalem. So it starts there. This is Acts 3 through 6. This is the word of God, mostly through Peter and John, the original apostles. At this point in the story of the early church, it remains largely a Jewish community. So most of the people in, the early, in this point in the church are former Jews who believe that Christ is the Messiah and are figuring out how to, what that means, that he is risen from the dead. Though some Gentiles are being added at this point. The next important development in the story is that the gospel moves increasingly to those outside the Jewish context. And that leads to the next section. The Spirit empowers the church's witness in Judea and Samaria. This is Acts 6 through 11. This is the word of God going out through people like Stephen and Philip and Peter, which is interesting because it's starting to expand beyond the apostles, right? Um, and what's, uh, what's interesting here is like what, what's, what, what moves the people out of Jerusalem is actually persecution. It's a difficulty. The great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem, so the disciples leave for the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. The Spirit is using the enemies of the church to scatter its members throughout the Roman Empire. Thus, instead of thwarting the spread of the gospel, these enemies actually have a hand in spreading it. So you're starting to see, like, a lot like we've been talking about in the book of Esther, right? God's hidden hand, even under difficult things, to accomplish his purposes even though it's persecution that makes them leave Jerusalem, still, even the enemies of, of God are helping accomplish his purposes by sending them out, um, out of Jerusalem and moving out into the world. Undoubtedly, the most important event that happens in this period uh, of persecution is the conversion and call of a man from Tarsus named Saul, uh, who becomes the Apostle Paul. And he kind of takes center stage next for the third part of Acts, which is the spirit empowers the church's witness to the ends of the earth, which at that point was Rome. <laughs> That's what they imagined was, um, you know, their, 
as much as they could imagine probably in their local sphere. That's Acts 11 through 28. So this is the word of God through Paul and his friends. And then now we're getting, you see what's happening now? Like it's the more, the further we move away from Jerusalem, the less it's a, uh, it's a Jewish or former Jews or converting Jews. And it's much more about Gentiles, about foreigners, about those who have know nothing about the story of Israel um, and what it means to be, uh, to be part of the Jewish people. So therefore, obviously what happens is there's, there's some, now you got a church like the Romans who are, you know, some former Jews and a whole bunch of Gentiles. And that's two different ways of seeing the world, two different practices, two different, you know, these former enemies are now like supposed to be the one church of Jesus. And so that drama kind of dominates most of the New Testament. As it talks about there, it may well be difficult for us today to understand how hard it was for the Jews of the first century to give up traditions that had for so long safeguarded their religious identity as distinct from the pagan Gentiles. And Paul now calls them to accept Gentile believers as equal partners in the renewed Israel of God's kingdom. It is not surprising then that that struggles between Gentiles and Jews mark this early period of the church's history. Almost all the letters of Paul are trying to address some of these struggles, right? The Jewish people are like, hey, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, but hey, you've got to be circumcised. Like, we've been doing that for ages. And Paul's like, actually, they don't. <laughs> or like, hey, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, but you've got to follow these dietary laws we've been following for, you know, forever. And Paul's like, actually, they don't have to do that either. You know, like, it's, whole, it's, it's, it's this whole, I mean, that's, that's most of the drama in the letters is Paul, like, helping this new Jew and Gentile form church get along and love each other. And it's wonderful because we're still doing the same things today, <laughs> just over different issues, right? Um, so there's lots of parallels. So here in, in this part, in the latter part of the book of Acts, this is the first time we see a planned effort to take the gospel to places where it has not yet been heard. So up until this, it was like, they didn't plan to leave Jerusalem. They had to because they were persecuted. And, you know, like people were just going around like Philip and Stephen being like, hey, I, like, have you heard? This Jesus is the Messiah. But now like Paul, it becomes like systematized. Like we're going to go here and we're going to go here and we're going to go here. and We're going to start a church. And then like it becomes like this actual effort, this missional posture um, to go to where to places with throughout the Roman Empire where they haven't heard the news of the gospel. But interestingly and famously, the book of Acts ends abruptly. (laughs) The ending of Acts is truly an opening to the continuing life of the Messianic people as it continues to preach the kingdom and to teach the things concerning Jesus, both boldly and without hindrance. That's the last image in the book of Acts is uh, Paul is is in prison. He's under house arrest. Um, He's not free, but the gospel is. The gospel is going out without hindrance, and that continues today. Okay. Um, I'm going to press through and ask questions at the end. Is that okay? Feel good? All right. Because now we get to, our, now we get to us. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's quite a large jump from the end of Acts all the way to us. And, and we'll talk about some of the things that happen uh, through Paul's letters and how this theology starts to take shape through the Apostle Paul of understanding what it means that the kingdom has come and that Jesus is the king. But now, now, now we get to wrestle with, like, what is our place in this story? How do we come into this drama? And this is a little bit of a recap, but remember, all human communities, including our own, live out of some comprehensive story that suggests the meaning and the goal of history and gives shape and direction to human life. We may neglect the biblical story, God's comprehensive account of the shape and the direction of cosmic history and the meaning of all that he has done in our world. But if we do so, the fragments of the Bible that we do, that we do preserve are in danger of being absorbed piecemeal into the dominant cultural story of our world. Thus, instead of allowing the Bible to shape us, we may in fact, be allowing the culture to shape the Bible for us. 
if our lives are to be shaped and formed by Scripture, we need to know the biblical story well, to feel it in our bones. And to do this, we must also know our place within it, where we are in this story. That makes sense? That's kind of been our premise the whole time. If we don't know the big story, then it's going to get chopped up and piecemealed and absorbed into other stories, and it's going to lose its character, its fundamental nature. So if we're really going to live out of the story, we got we to, gotta, number one, we got to understand it, but two, we got to know what it means for us, like what's our place in the story. So the way they do this in the book to help us understand our place in the story is by asking uh, what they call the five great questions uh, or the five fundamental questions. Lots of people, not, not just Christians, have said uh, our, our lives are primarily shaped by how we answer these five fundamental questions. And so what we want to try to do is answer them with the help of the Apostle Paul as he writes the rest of the New Testament letters of how he helps us understand the kingdom of God and what it means for us to participate in it. Okay. Now I want you to think though, as we go through these five questions, like how does the way we're answering this or or the way uh, the kingdom or the way Christianity answers it, how does it compare to the way um, other secular stories answer the same questions? Does it make sense? So to figure out how we can not only find our place, but understand what it means to how we relate to the world around us. So the first question is, where are we? <laughs> Which makes sense. Um, that, is, that is, what kind of world do we live in? How do we understand the world that we live in and around us? And this is really important. And I, this is, I love these five questions because this, this to me, like, this brings it home into like why, I mean, there's lots of reasons I'm a Christian today, but these, the answer to these five questions, uh, the account of it, like, it makes the most sense of my experience in this world, right? Um, it, it helps me understand reality as I experience it and as I've seen it in light of the story of the gospel. So the very first question is, like, what kind of world do we live in? And what the Apostle Paul talks a lot about in helping us understand the kingdom of God is that we live in the in-between times. So that is um, the old age uh, and the age to come, which is the coming of the kingdom, they overlap. Remember we talked about this a little bit in the, in the parables right? Uh, that weed and weeds grow together. It's, it's, not, it's not a clean break between that old world and the new world that is to come. So the old age that's dominated by sin and evil and death, but the age to come is dominated by the knowledge of God, love, joy, and justice. The kingdom of God, the age to come, has dawned in Christ. The old age is passing away, and the new has come. Second Corinthians 5.17 but the fullness of time has arrived, Galatians 4, and now is the day of God's salvation. Those who were in Adam, that's the old, the old man, the old age, under the sway of the old age, can now be in Christ and already experiencing God's life-giving power of the age to come. And all of this is possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus we talked about last time. His crucifixion is, is this dividing point in history. Uh, it's the victory over the powers of the old age. His resurrection marks... Marks, Marsk, marks the beginning of the new, um, and all this stuff about him being the first of a much more to come is is what all those images are. And yet, there are clear signs that the kingdom has not yet arrived in fullness, and so we have not been fully delivered from the influence of evil. We are still surrounded by dar- by the darkness of sin and rebellion against God. Thus, we live in tension of the already and the not yet aspects of the kingdom. These two ages are allowed to coexist so that the church's missional work, the gathering of the nations, can be accomplished before the final revelation of the kingdom. That makes sense. That's like, I can't explain to you how important that was for me to understand, like, the in-between times, the already and the not yet. Because most of us vacillate between one side, which is either we're overly optimistic, like, hey, the kingdom's here, like, everything should be better. And then it's not. And then, or we vacillate towards like pessimism, like, wait, the kingdom's here? Why is there still so much suffering and terrible things in the world and in my life? And this helps you be a realist <laughs> that we live in, where are we? We live in the in between times. The kingdom is here, truly, re- really. Like, we see evidences of it, and yet it's not here in its fullness. And therefore, we live in tension of the already and the not yet. I love, somebody asked Leslie Newbigin, uh, who's uh, a British theologian and missionary, 
And they said, uh, are, are you, sir, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And he said, neither. Christ is risen. I was like, that's the answer. <laughs> We're not optimists or pessimists, but if we believe Christ is really risen from the dead, then even though we live in the tension, we know where it's heading, so to speak. So, again, lots of other ways people answer that question. That is the way the Christian account of the kingdom answers that question. Where do we? Where are we? We live in the in-between times. Secondly, and this is huge, who are we? What does it mean to be a human being? Uh, and this is massive in, in trying to understand what it means to be human. And so the account of the kingdom of God is this. To be truly human is to live under the gracious rule of King Jesus. This is the new life he's given us. It's a new relationship with God that is described in terms of righteousness, reconciliation, and adoption. I won't go into each of those individually, but obviously they are massive to understanding what it means to be a human according to the gospel. Is that you actually have Christ's righteousness, right? When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of his son. And that that, be, that can begin to chip away at this guilt and shame that we carry with us. Uh, reconciliation. Right? The God of the universe is now our friend and our father. Um, and we're not estranged from him. And in fact, we are adopted. We are his very sons and daughters. Um, because of this new relationship we have with God, this new identity we have with him, um, everything's been reoriented in how we understand ourselves in relation to God. And then this new life actually leads to new obedience. Um, so I read that, that quote after that point. Starting with, this is the church. This is the church, the people who live in a new world with a new identity and a new relationship to God. Thus, Paul commands the church to live more and more the new life of God's kingdom, to take off the old self as if it were slow clothing, and to put on the new. In other words, they are told to bid farewell to the way of life that was shaped by their experience of this present age, and to embrace a new way of life as part of the age to come. And with this new life comes a call to a new kind of obedience to God's law in every part of life, and obedience to religion love. Yeah. It's important to keep in mind the first question when we're talking about this question, because a lot of this can start to sound a little triumphalistic, right? New relationship, new life, new obedience. And you're like, I still feel kind of dirty or sorted or, you know, like, remember, it's the already and the not yet. But it doesn't mean these things aren't true about you uh, because of the gospel. And so this is, I mean, this is a, a very distinct way of defining what it means to be human, which is to live under the gracious rule of King Jesus. And you only do that if you are convinced, one, that God actually loves you uh, and that he's actually committed to your good, and the two, you can trust him. You know what this is like? I mean, this like, um, it's, it's, it's like kids and parenting. Like, they're not going to listen to a word you say if they don't believe that you love them, you actually care about them, and you're, you're for them, you're for their flourishing. Same things that happens uh, as a Christian. If you are convinced by the gospel that God loves you, you can actually trust him when he says to do things that don't make a whole lot of sense. Like, uh, I don't know, stop hoarding your money and give it away. Like, what? No way. He's like, no, this is, this is what it means to flourish under my rule, to live generously. You'll actually be happier when you, when you live generously. Or like, stop working yourself to death, right? Rest, take a day off, take Sabbath. Like, we only, we only take that, we only trust that if we actually convince that he loves us and, and that his ways are good. So, significant question. Who are we? To be truly human is to live under the gracious rule of the king. Thirdly, what's wrong? This is also a massive question. What is the fundamental problem with the world? We won't go, this is the shortest answer because we talked most about it earlier on. The fundamental problem of the world is sin, and the fundamental nature of sin is a quest for autonomy, a desire to separate ourselves from God. And again, this is, if you went out there and asked, I don't know, any five random people, hey, what's, what, is, what is the fundamental problem in the world? 
I, most, I don't, I bet none of them will say, oh, it's human autonomy. <laughs> you know, like, we think that's usually the best thing in the world is like, yeah, be yourself. Like, do what you want to do. Don't let anybody else um, be the man, you know, whatever. But the, the story of the kingdom answers it differently. The, the fundamental problem is actually we want to separate ourselves from God and come out of his gracious rule and do things our own way. And question four, therefore, is what is the remedy? What will fix the problem? Again, if you ask five different people what will fix the world, you'll get a lot of different answers. But our remedy for our, our, our autonomous selves is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. By his work, we are made a part of his kingdom. And by his spirit, we are enabled to live all of life, not under our own lordship, but under the lordship of Christ. That's, in, in, in a sense, the simplest way to talk about what it means to be a Christian is to be convinced of the claims of, of the gospel and then to more and more try to bring every part of our life under his lordship, under his reign, under his good design. I won't read that whole next point. It's, that's just talking about, and we're going to talk about, a lot about that in Acts 6. In Act six. But it's like talking about how this isn't just like a spiritual thing. This is like, this means everything, like the whole world. Uh, not just like our spiritual lives coming under uh, the reign of Jesus. And then the last question is, what time is it? <laughs> Literally, actually, what time? 7.38, okay. Um, but like, where are we, how do we, um, how do we locate ourselves in this story? At what point of the story do we enter into it? It's like asking, what's most important right now? How can we play our part as to allow the story to move forward toward the conclusion that God has already written for it? And so, I, I, again, I don't think I'll read all of this, but this is, a, this is a beautiful summary of what it means to be the church today which is to continue the, the mission of Israel, the mission of Jesus, and the mission of the early church. The mission of Israel was to be a light to the world, and so the same thing is happening now. God has gathered a community through whom he wants to shine light in all the dark places in the world. Secondly, we're to introduce the kingdom. This is the continuing mission of Jesus. I will read this one because it starts to talk about the cosmic scope of this. Though today some Christians believe that Jesus came to enable us to escape this creation, and live eternally in an otherworldly and heavenly dwelling, such an understanding of salvation would have been entirely foreign to Old Testament prophets, to first century Jews, and to Jesus himself. Salvation is not an escape from creational life into a spiritual existence. It is the restoration of God's rule over all of creation and all of human life. Neither is salvation merely the restoration of a personal relationship with God. Important as that is, salvation goes further. It is the restoration of the whole life of humankind and ultimately of the non-human creation as well. This is the scope of biblical salvation. That's what it means to continue the mission of Jesus. And lastly, being, bearing faithful witness, continuing the mission of the early church. Uh, I'll just read the first one because I, because I really like it. <laughs> uh, what does it mean to, to witness to the kingdom? I think here of a film preview. It's a few minutes of actual footage from a film not yet released. This trailer is shown so that the potential audience can catch a glimpse of what the whole film will look like once it is ready to be shown in its entirety. One important function of the church is, is thus to be a picture, a brief representation, a sample of what the future in God's kingdom will be. That's what it means to continue the mission of the early church. is to be a, a foretaste, a glimpse, a preview of, of the life that is to come. That next one talks about that doesn't mean just uh, witnessing, doesn't mean just you know sharing or doing cross-cultural missions. Uh, it also doesn't mean just um, uh, you know starting a Bible study in your work. It means like cosmically, everything in the middle of that. Witness will mean embodying God's renewing power in politics and citizenship, economics and business, education and scholarship, family and neighborhood, media and art, leisure and play. It's not just that we carry out evangelism, evangelism in these areas of life. Again, this is important, but not enough. And it means that we live as citizens. Uh, it, it means that the way we live as citizens, cons- consumers, students, husbands, mothers and friends, witnesses to the restoring power of God. And then lastly, you're asking, what time is it? Uh, we're people who live in hope because we're straining towards what lies ahead. 
And this is massive, um, especially in our world today where uh, hope is hard to come by. Uh, in the Christian faith, hope is massively important. It's a vital part of the faith that must shape our mission today. Now these three remain, says Paul, faith, hope, and love. Faith is, faith is the means by which we appropriate the salvation accomplished in Jesus Christ. Love is the outward expression of that faith, which marks the life of the believing community. And hope is the confident expectation that God's future kingdom will come. Hope is a settled conviction about the future, a conviction giving meaning and shape to life in the present. What we hope for in the future will shape our mission in the present. So that's how we answer, what time is it? (laughs) Uh, We're like looking back to Israel and Jesus in the early church and taking our cues from them about how to live in the present. And we're looking forward in anticipation and hope of the full arrival of the kingdom of God. All right, Acts 6 is, uh, is short, so I'll breeze through that, and then we'll talk about it. Sound good? All right, Acts 6, speaking of living in hope, uh, this is where it's headed. The return of the king when redemption will be completed. So when God set out to redeem his creation from sin and sin's effect on it, his ultimate purpose was that what he had once created good should be utterly restored that the whole cosmos should once again live and thrive under his beneficent rule. The last chapters of Revelation give us a clear picture of what lies in store for the creation as God brings history to its conclusion. April, would you read Revelation 21? The first couple of verses. Sure. Oh, not that one. I thought you meant our song. <laughs> Yeah, this is huge. This is where it's heading. The descent of God's heavenly dwelling place, the new Jerusalem, to earth is the graphic representation that God's kingdom has come and his will is forevermore to be accomplished on earth just as it always has been in heaven. That's when it's complete, right? When there's no longer a separation at all between heaven and earth when they're fully joined together as heaven literally comes down to earth. That's when the kingdom will be complete. Uh, I'm going to read this this quote because I love it. Uh, Heaven, the dwelling place of God, which has become separated from the creation because of sin, comes down to earth in a dramatic image of restored unity and harmony between the creator and what he has created. God himself comes to dwell on the new earth with humankind. Sin and all its effects are removed. There is no more death or sickness or pain, but only peace and harmony because the relationship between God and humankind has been healed. God is once again as close to us as in the days when he walked with our ancestors, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Relationships among human beings, too, have been healed. Love reigns. The whole of human life is purified, and even the non-human creation shares in the liberation of God's people from the former slavery to sin and death. The goal of biblical history is a renewed creation, healed, redeemed, and restored. And all this has taken shots to, I'll fly away, kind of stuff. See you, Brendan. Uh, you know, like, we're going to go, just going to heaven when you die. Um, all this is saying, that's wonderful, it's way too small. <laughs> you got to think, the goal of biblical history is a renewed creation, healed, redeemed, and restored. How's that going to happen? Boy, we don't have time to wade into, uh, you know, end times conversations. But if you simplify it as much as possible, <laughs> uh, just just read Left Behind and um, just kidding. Yes. Now, if you simplify it, and as most basic, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to return. So there's nothing that has to happen before Jesus returns, contrary to 
bad theology. Uh, Jesus returns. Uh, the dead are raised bodily. Everybody, uh, if if there are dead, if you're alive, you you know, that's great. Um, but the dead are raised bodily, some to share in the life of the new creation and others to final wrath. And then the whole world comes before Christ to be judged. And there's, there's, a great, um, there's, there's a great thing about uh, not getting lost. Uh, literally, like, well, I'll just read it. Uh, fixing our attention on details such as the time of Christ's return, the millennium, the rapture, which doesn't exist, the final judgment, the antichrist, and the tribulation is a bit like becoming obsessed with the nature, strength, and frequency of the birth pangs when we should be thinking about the baby. Though the labor pains of end-time events can be fascinating, we must give due attention to the new world to be born out of them. And so our focus here is on the baby, the new world waiting to be born. When the world is that going to look like? When the whole world, the whole creation is restored uh, and fully redeemed and the kingdom is finally complete? Um, we don't know uh, a lot. Um, and Jesus even says, uh, or the Apostle Paul actually even says, like, no mind can even conceive what God has planned for us. But here's the things we do know. Um, there will be continuity and discontinuity between the world as we know it and the world to come. Again, the only evidence we have to go on of what a resurrection world will look like is Jesus's body. And when he rose from the dead, it's literally the only thing that's... Um, been risen from the dead uh, in, the, in the final form of the body that he will have for all eternity. And all we know is there was continuity. People could recognize him, although some people didn't, right? But he still looked like himself. He had the scars that were in his hands. But he was also different. Like he could like pass through doors and stuff. And so, so it was going to be continuity with the world as we know it today, but also some discontinuity uh, between what our resurrected bodies will be capable of. But very importantly, it will be physical. We're not going to live in a disembodied spiritual world. It will be a physical earth, a new earth, a new heavens and a new earth, and it will be comprehensive. So when God set out to deal with sin and its ruinous consequences, his plan was to destroy the enemy of his good creation, not to destroy the creation itself. To destroy what he had made would have been to concede a tremendous victory to Satan. J.A. Seis puts it this way. Uh, Seis, if redemption does not go as far as the consequences of sin, it is a misnomer and fails to be redemption. The salvation of any number of individuals is not the redemption of what fell, but the gathering up of a few splinters. And in such a case, Satan's mischief would go further than Christ's restoration. We can sing it now, right? Far as the curse is found. It's got to go. It's got to go as far as the curse or it's not full, fully redemption. Just as nothing in creation remained untouched by sin after Eden, so nothing in creation can remain untouched by God's redemption after Christ's victory on the, co- on the cross. Does that make sense? Are we starting to see why it's too small to just be like, hey, we'll go live disembodied in heaven. No. Like, um, I used to joke all the time about like, That'd be like getting to the end of the Lord of Rings and being like, you know what? We don't want to live in Middle Earth anyway. Like, what was the vol- No, the whole point was like fighting this massive war to like regain Middle Earth so you don't then like leave it and go live somewhere else. Like, that's. Well, that's because that's not exactly, you know, anyway. But yeah, you get the point though. Like, you don't, you don't get to the end of this massive battle and then be like, oh, you know, I don't want to live here. No, like, that's. That was the whole point. And, uh, and then lastly, as compre- a comprehensive redemption also means the human cultural development. That human cultural development and work will continue. The cultural achievements of history will be purified and will appear on the new earth. Revelation 21. And there, will be, uh, there will be opportunity for humankind to continue to work and develop the creation, but now released from the burden of sin. What does that mean? We're not going to float on harps and sing. All, all eternity. We're going to have jobs. We're going to work. But it's not going to be stained by sin anymore. I don't even know what that'll... We won't have marriage. Bummer. Uh, because that image has, you know, been fulfilled by the coming of Christ. But we're going to work... And you should read... If you haven't read it, read Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright, where he starts to, like, peak your imagination of, like, maybe even the things that we did on this earth will 
carry over into the new creation. Maybe a song or poem you wrote on this earth will actually be there. Um, but we're going to work, like we're created to work. We're, we're created, and just like Adam and Eve in the beginning, right? Take care of my, the kingdom I've made. So what we're going to do in the end. We're going to take care of the world that God has made through all sorts of creative and wonderful ways. But now, no longer with thorns and thistles and uh, all the struggles of, of the curse of sin working against us. That sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds a lot better than floating on clouds. Yeah. Okay. That's Acts 5 and 6 of where we are and where we're headed.